My name is Paul Waller, not Weller, and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my band and my music management job slowed right down. And at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform, Letterboxd. So I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge. Within one week, I was averaging three a day. And this podcast is a result of that horror compulsion. A year in horror. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 2010 on a year in horror. 2010, surprisingly, is a fantastic year for horror. Uh, We are going to go through this top to bottom. I loved doing this one so much more than 2001. But before we do, a few things. Now, last month in that section that I call the worst of 2001, I referred to Takashi Mike as Takashi Mike. (laughs) Not once, but twice. And I feel incredibly ashamed and embarrassed about this. I mean, not as embarrassed as he should for leaving all those mics on view in Visitor Q. Not that embarrassed, but it has to be addressed. I know nothing. And it's really rude, I think, when people don't try and at least try and find out how to pronounce people's names. I do it all the time and I muck it up. But I must admit, I just always thought his name was Takashi Mike. So, Mr. Mike, many, many apologies. And once I found out, listening back, it just made me squirm. I deserve everything I'm going to get, let's face it. But maybe you will find this lack of correct diction to be commonplace going forward. So, you've been forewarned. So, with that, hello, welcome to A Year in Horror. This is still, I would say, a relatively new podcast where I choose a year at random every month and I run down my personal favourite films of that year. Each episode, I am joined not just by one guest, but by a bunch of guests. They help me wade my way through the rough and the smooth... Uh, So today we've got photographer and filmmaker Benjamin Bowles, we have director, actor and writer Josh Rubin, we have musicians Serena Cherry and Daniel Sargent and ex-record label boss and all-round German punk and hardcore legend Dennis Merkenhaus. All this plus my best new buddy Mark Canali. You're going to have a good time, let's go forward. Now, I have to mention this every month because I've started getting emails, I've started getting comments about it, so I just want to put it straight. My definition of horror is sometimes pretty torturous for all those with a particularly definitive version of what actually makes a horror. And sometimes these torturous decisions of mine, they make it to the very top spot, so prepared to get proper triggered if you are a horror fascist. Now, I mainly had people getting in touch with me being a little bit upset because I classed The Terminator as a horror for my 1984 episode. Now, we're only three months into this. It's definitely going to get worse. Well, I hope it gets worse. 
I'm looking forward to it getting worse. Just please remember, we all like different styles. We may have different definitions of what constitutes a horror movie. And if you really just want to bed down to extreme horror podcasts, then bin this one and try Zobo with a shotgun. You'll be really happy with it. It really goes to the ins and outs of what makes extreme horror so addictive. So, when you make it to the very end of this, I'm going to be picking out from a bag at random the next year that I tackle for the next month's edition of the podcast. Now, these numbers begin at 1960 and they end at 2020. You might notice that they're also years. So, when I pick them out, that's what year we're going to talk about the following month. It's easy. Now, we began on the first podcast that we did in 1984, then we did 2001, and here we are at 2010. So, obviously, those have been omitted from the bag. Plus, last month, I dumped in three extra scraps of paper. One of them is marked 1920s and 30s, one of them is marked 1940s, and another 1950s. When I pick it out, the following month, we're just going to talk about whatever it says on that piece of paper. And I'm probably going to have to watch 50 shitty movies. So for the 1984 podcast, I watched a total of 56 movies. For our 2001 edition, I watched just 49. But for 2010, this podcast that you're listening to right now, it was proper stacked. I watched 67 movies to compile this chart. And not only that, I accidentally watched a film called Postmortem. I sat through the whole thing. I gave it 2 out of 10. Now, Letterboxd, who I take all this from, they completely lied to me by calling this a horror. There was no horror in it. It's a Chilean wartime drama, except for that rather harsh double murder at the end. So there you go. I've spoiled it. Don't watch it. 2 out of 10. Rubbish. Next, I accidentally watched a film called Who is Clark Rockefeller? Now, that was a TV movie, and this one was one point better. It got 3 out of 10, but Letterboxd again completely lied to me. Again! There's no horror in it. It's a sort of fake identity, child-snatching, lifetime movie of the week sort of thing. 3 out of 10 nonsense, that is. 3 out of 10 nonsense. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, 67 films, that isn't very many. But you'd be crazy, because it's loads! You try watching My Soul to Take back-to-back with Witchville and just calculate how many seconds that you'll never get back. It's a specific skill that I excel at. So here are the rules that I stick with to compile this list. I had to have a cut-off line somewhere, so I used Letterboxd as a rough measuring post. So a movie needs to be looking at getting a 3 out of 5 score before I'm going to watch it. A good example here is Tim Sullivan's 2001 Maniacs Part 2, Field of Screams. Now that scores a horrible 1.8 currently on Letterboxd. And because there isn't an angle for me to latch onto it with, i.e. an actor I love or a director that's wowed me in the past, then I'm simply going to let it pass by. But, of course, there's exceptions to the rule. 2010 saw the release of Saw 3D, otherwise known as Saw the Final Chapter. Now that only scored a 2.3 on Letterboxd, but I've already watched these Saw movies all the way up to Saw 6, so really I was always going to add that one to my watch list, and this one was just next in the franchise, so it's included here. Easy. These are easy rules. Uh, Here's the most important thing though. Please remember, 
I'm just a fan. I'm an enthusiast. I am no horror expert. So if I miss something out that you love, let me know. And it also works the other way around. If you pick up a great tip from me, rattling on about all these crap films that I've been watching, I'll be really glad to hear from you. Now I'm going to repeat these contacts at the end in part two, but feel free to contact me at the podcast. My email here is ayearinhorror at gmail.com. You can contact me with any films at all that you think I missed, anything that you want to say, anything I should give a go, or anything you just want to comment on. You can follow me at Walla Not Weller on Letterboxd, or you can go to Instagram and I'm Walla Not Weller there. If you're more of a Twitter person, and this goes out to you, Donald Trump, you can follow me at Not Weller Pod. That's where I am on Twitter. Finally, if you're still with me, thank you very much. This has gone on a bit long. Maybe I'll cut this down a bit next time. I don't know. But if you are here, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It does mean that I'm going to slightly be higher on those results when you're scrobbling looking for your horror podcasts. Right, okay, we're ready to go here. Are you ready to go? Let's go with the flow, slow and low. That is the tempo. So I was never really sure how this part was going to go down. Are people going to like this? Are people going to be like, why are you slagging films off? It's a tricky one, but I think it's relevant. I think if you understand that it is just one person's opinion, everyone's got films they dislike from certain years. And all I'm doing here is telling you mine. And one of the great things about A Year in Horror is I've already had a ton of correspondence. And I love it when people mention this part as being their favourite. So yes... I am going to continue with it. This is the 10 worst movies from 2010. Now, as always, there is this caveat. I am sure there were worse movies than these that came out in 2010. But these were the worst ones that I actually sat through. Well, sat most of the way through. This is the worst 10 movies out of the 67 that I saw. So kicking off straight away at number 10, it's Outcast. Now this is a very Scottish movie and it spends a fair bit of its runtime in Edinburgh amongst the streets and the building fronts that I recognise from the few times that I've been there, either on tour or on holiday. And those were my favourite moments that I took from the film. Now, the other half of this film, it could have been set anywhere on the British Isles at all. It focuses purely on those run-down estates where violence and drug misuse and drug dealing, all this sort of crime, is a daily occurrence. And it almost always stems from poverty. And that sounds pretty bleak, but this bleak setting does not always excuse the plot holes uh, and those underwritten characters, they use them throughout. In essence, it's a monster movie, but really you root for this monster to rip apart the film crew in order just to finish the whole thing sooner. I rented this one off Amazon Prime. I think it was £2.50. pennies. If I was you, I'd save your cash. Number nine, it stars Luke Goss from Bross. 
This one is called Witchville and it also features some of the worst acting and worst set pieces that you're ever likely to see. It's a sci-fi channel original uh, and boy does it feel like it. Uh, director Perry Teo, I can tell that he does his very best here. But the witches and the monsters, they never carry any threat at all. It's just those fantasy elements that are the only moments in this thing that holds it all together. Not good. Uh, and in the eighth position, we have A Nightmare on Elm Street. Kruger! Come on out, you sick bastard! You open this door, Kruger! What do you think I did? I didn't do it This is the remake that destroyed rather than relaunch that whole franchise. And I think it sort of worked, like sort of. It wasn't as horrible as everyone made out anyway, uh, except for one major flaw, Freddy Krueger himself. It just wasn't what I or the majority of the fans wanted. And really, what else could you do? You're never going to be able to recreate that character. He is a loved villain. And I really don't want to slag this. I mean, you can tell from watching it that everyone on the screen is trying their hardest. But having Michael Bay team up with New Line just to deliver this thing, it was always going to fail. And I think they should have left it well alone. Speaking of leaving franchises alone, in at number seven, it's Paranormal Activity 2. No, not, not that one. This is Paranormal Activity 2, Tokyo Night. Now, I think this is an unofficial Japanese soft sequel. It's definitely not canon. Uh, the main issue is it tries to rip off so many of those scares from the original, uh, but it does it while lacking any tension, and it really makes that found footage device not work. Like If they thought for a moment that this could come off the back of a found footage classic, they got another thing coming now. Sticking with crappy franchise sequels, at number 6 we've got Saw 3D, aka Saw The Final Chapter. Issues with this one are so plentiful, we could do a separate podcast on it, but let's just say this, there are so many hard cut flashbacks, convoluted writing all over the place, just to try and make these storylines fit together, and also the insertion of all those new traps, it's purely for the fans in the cinema that just want to see a bit of gore. For the first time in this franchise, they add nothing to anything to do with this plot. It's just stupid. It's juvenile. I can see why quite a few people still like it. And also, I just want to mention the 3D effects here. They are worse than that of the Friday the 13th 3D movie. Or Jaws 3D for that matter. It's total bullshit. And it still made a fortune. Of course it did. What was that? You say you want more sequel nonsense? Right, okay. At number five, Lost Boys, The Thirst. First of all, I want to take back all those kind things that I said about Corey Feldman from the 1984 episode, episode number one of A Year in Horror. I want to take all that back. He's ruined it. 
At 80 minutes long, this one is so overlong, so underbaked, and such a cash-in, it misguidedly thinks that if you can include some werewolves into this lore, it's going to expand the universe and they can carry on from there. It's shit. And crashing in. At number four, we have the inconceivably popular, by a large percentage of those that have seen it, it's Beyond the Black Rainbow. Now, this one for me has just got so much style over substance and it's incredibly boring. Not to be confused with the phrase, a slow burn. It's just boring. Best way I can describe this to you is this. Think of black metal videos from this sort of time and this dead slow art house really dated look fills that first hour of the film. And to be honest with you, after that hour, I skipped through the rest of it. And I really rarely do that. But I did want to see how it ended or if things improved. And I've got to admit, it did look a bit better. Like visually, at least, it looked better. But it already long lost me by then. I would not recommend it. But as I say, a large percentage of those art horror fans, they really rate this one. Beyond the Black Rainbow is number four. And at number three in my worst of 2010, we have Wes Craven's My Soul to Take. Now, I didn't want to speak ill of one of my heroes, and I'm not going to. We've all done shitty things in our lives, things we regret. And thankfully, Wes Craven, he left us with Scream 4 just a year after he made this. So we weren't left with just this mess to process as his final film. That's as much as I'm going to criticise this. That's my soul to take. Let's move on very quickly. At number two, Mutant Girls Squad. Now, this one felt so cheap in so many respects, not just financial. It really bugged me. It was lit so terribly. And the performances and that splatter effects felt so on a budget that it would have been better just to have them take place off camera and you not see anything at all which isn't really ideal for a splatter movie. I mean, I turned this off halfway through. I didn't skip through the rest of it. I just didn't care about anything that was going on, any of the characters. It felt like I was watching an episode of the Power Rangers on TV as a kid. It was horrible. But it wasn't as bad as this. For the absolute worst movie that I saw from 2010, we have... The Belgian snooze fueled master disaster cannibal. C'est quoi ton nom? Max. Et toi? Devine. Pourquoi personne peut te toucher? Pourquoi il faudrait te toucher? On a, on a perdu une fille, on est emmerdé et il faut que tu la retrouves. On fait avec. Ginette. J'avais raison, on a intérêt. Now this one, this was so, so boring that when there was only 15 minutes left, I actually got up, turned off the telly, <laughs> turned off the Blu-ray player and just went to bed. I couldn't be bothered to find out the conclusion. I would rather have just gone to bed than sit through another 15 minutes to find out. I tried really hard to care at the beginning as well, but like this was just painful. And what's odd is the synopsis sounds half decent, if a bit unbelievable. 
So effectively, what you have is a slightly agrophobic. I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know if you can be slightly agrophobic. As far as I was aware, you're just agrophobic or you're not. But anyway, this fella, he's slightly agrophobic and he lives in a forest and he finds this attractive, scantily clad woman passed out and bloodied up in the woods just by his house. So he's obviously gone out. So he's not that agrophobic. And he picks her up. He takes her home. And there's also some gangsters that want to find her. That's about all I'm going to give you. If you can find this, you can watch it yourself to see how it concludes. I paid £2.26 for this on eBay, including postage, I might add. And I still feel completely duped. So my worst film, the worst film that I saw, and I can't imagine there's one worse out there from 2010 in the horror community. But if there is, I'd love to know. This is Cannibal. Let's move on, shall we? Right, a couple of things before we hit that top 10. So, one of them is that we have an also-ran section. And before the also-ran section, I have to mention here a couple of TV shows that caught my eye that launched in this year. And it has to be mentioned that after the success of Battlestar Galactica, that TV series, they tried to launch a new one and they called it Caprica. And this time... Instead of making one of the greatest science fiction series that's ever graced our tellies, what they did is they sort of reinvented Dallas with some advanced technology. It was horrible. But I think far more importantly, on Halloween 2010, AMC launched The Walking Dead. Now, I was going to do this whole bit on The Walking Dead, but, but why? What would be the point? Anybody that digs horror knows about The Walking Dead. Plus, it's a TV show. Uh, and the movies this year are so stacked that I just didn't think it had a place on here. So I just want you to know that even though we may hit TV again in the future uh, and have a chat about it, for this particular circumstance, The Walking Dead misses out. I mean, it was the biggest show on television at one point. I don't think I need to recommend it to you. You already know about it, so just be aware. I do know The Walking Dead came out. I do think it was an incredible thing, and you already know that. So here we go. This is the also-ran section. recommend that you get a pen and a pad out and you get scribbling or you get your phone ready on notepad mode and you just go for it but I'll let you know when you should be doing that right now we're going to start at some four out of ten piles of 2010 turd first of all we are taking a trip to Hong Kong and we visit dream house now everything about this could have worked could have worked but the film expects us to take it seriously and yet it presents us with so many unrealistic kills and some hyper fantastic scenarios that it's just silly talking of silly next up is rubber and i do understand that this one has a large fan base i know people are going to be going what how is rubber not in your top 10 
And because of that mad fan base, yeah, I was really looking forward to watching this for the first time. In fact, I would say out of every film that I watched for the first time this time around, this is the one I was looking forward to the most. But ultimately, it was horrible as well. I mean, it's as good as I expected a movie about a sentient tire with telekinetic powers would be. It's got that going for it. What's next? Um, Resident Evil Afterlife. Well, this one is about as good as you think it is. Of course, it made millions and millions and millions. And it didn't interest me anywhere as much as the next one. So next up in my also rants, but still sitting at 4 out of 10, is a Serbian film. And you know what? I think I was put off this film for years and years. Uh, just because all those rumours and the hearsay and the myth building that surrounds this gross out sick fest. It was all rattling around my head. What was surprising was that this is an actual competent and well-made film. And at its heart, it's a great thriller that turns horror. But what makes it score so low, on the other hand, I couldn't bear ever watching this again. It doesn't just paint the most vile pictures in your head. It shows them. Uh, oh man, it killed me. I guess you have to see this just to say that you have seen it so you can be part of the chatter so you know what you're talking about. But for me, it was just an unnecessary moment in movie history. Now this one... Okay, yeah, this one, okay. So I think this is like 2007 or 2008, something like that. It took a few years for it to come out. Uh, it's called Exhibit A. It's an English found footage movie, and I would say it's not just made on a shoestring budget, but it's made out of those little plastic bits on the end of a shoestring budget. At certain places in this, I really do feel completely as one with that daughter. She has to deal with this embarrassing, overbearing dad who just doesn't know when to stop. And in my dad's case, drinking massive amount of gin. In this dad's case being a compulsive liar with delusions of grandeur and this tiny grasp on reality that's slowly falling away. It causes some terrible and also some horrifying scenarios to play out. It's an interesting one, but I think it's just a little bit poorly executed. Uh, the only way they could do this is in a found footage style. I would definitely give it a watch if you were a lover of found footage, but if you're not, this one is not going to bring you in, that's for sure. And finally, the last below average flick is the alien invasion sci-fi horror that is Skyline. Reports are coming in. Every major city in the world is experiencing the same encounter. They're everywhere. The further we get out of the city, the better off we are. He's right. <laughs> We have no idea what they're capable of. Run! Now, putting this on, I hadn't realised that I'd seen it before, but I'm glad I watched it for a second time. Unfortunately, it just asks way too much of its audience. I'm sitting there and I'm happy to suspend my disbelief. Okay, I'm happy to do that but not for every single scene. Saying that, I'm game for watching both of these sequels that have come out. Uh, if it's cheesy bullshit that you want, then I'd watch this over Resident Evil Apocalypse any day. Next up are the 5 out of 10s. 
Personally, I don't mind watching a film that's got half marks. There's always going to be good things I can take from them. Unfortunately, there's an equal amount of bad things that you can take from them. So here we go. I probably wouldn't get your pins out just yet. We're going to kick off with the original Mexican version of We Are What We Are. Now, for once, I actually prefer the remake. Uh, this is an urban cannibal movie. It drags more than it bites. Yeah. That's quite good. It drags more than it bites. Put that on the Blu-ray sticker, I think. Also on half points, it is The Wolfman. This one is spectacular. This one is epic. Truly entertaining in places. Yet at the same time, it's a bit pathetic. It's overproduced. Boring as hell in places. It's really bizarre. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, he overacts his tits off too. That's sort of cool. But yes, I, I couldn't rate the Wolfman more than 5 out of 10. What about The Last Exorcism? Well, let me tell you. Now, this one is surprisingly popular amongst the horror hordes. It's not bad for a found footage movie, to be honest. It follows a priest around as he dusts off his exorcism crucifixes for one last go at it. It's just a shame for him that this time, this is the real deal. It's a shame for us, though, that it never really delivers on its promise. Cold Fish. That's next. Uh, this is bonkers. Of course, it is. It's a Japanese nut fest. It just outstays its welcome by a good 50 minutes. It's so overlong. It loses points because of it. But honestly, there is a top 10 film in here if you just chip away at the excess nonsense. It's a crying shame. Crying shame. I was gutted. Imagine if it got in my top 10 and I've got a guest on here to talk for 20 minutes about keeping tropical fish. Would have been fantastic. Now, when I first rented Stakeland from Blockbuster's video shop, I was truly impressed. This time around, a decade later, I was really quite bored. And I think maybe this is due to the similarity with things like The Walking Dead. Uh, a lot of what's in here may well have been original then, but it's really dated now. And I think with The Walking Dead, because it's a TV show, it can allow itself lots of time to go into like huge amounts more characterization with its cast. Stakeland is just too much bang for its buck. It's all too fast. It never gives me a chance to fall in love with it. Um, yeah, so it's an also-ran in my eyes, an also-ran. One place above that, we're going back over to Japan for a film called The Insight Mill. Now, I was really engrossed with this one to begin with. It's set up with a similar vibe to films like Cube or Battle Royale. I will say that much. But you've got to inject a lot of the uh, reality program Big Brother into it as well. It's that sort of thing. Think of those three combined, maybe. Unfortunately, at the end, it's really failed me. Every overbaked plot point and the dialogue, it was also ropey. It spoiled what was just a really great start, a really fiery start that really pulled me in. It's a shame. Okay, here we are. These are the six out of tens. They're all worth a stab. I just wouldn't be re-watching them myself but I'm definitely glad I watched them for that one time. So grab that pen, grab the paper, grab your phone, put it on notepad, whatever you do. There may be some in this list that you haven't seen yet that you're going to really, really love. Up first, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. 
Now this is so much better than it looks like it will be. It's one of those Del Toro presents rather than it's Del Toro that directs it. So be aware of that. And I hate that sort of thing. If anything, it puts me off watching rather than having it entice me in. But this one has one hell of a creepy house. And it's got some fantastic CGI critters running about. It still looks good to me. Like Even though how far CG has moved on in 10 years, it still looks great. Uh, director Troy Nixie, he keeps them in the shadows most of the time, which only enhances like their potential for evil. Yep, this has a great atmosphere. This is a really good film. Don't be afraid of the dark. Now, one place above it, and I cannot forget to mention this to you, is a film called Koli Sanka. And I'm going to spell it for you because I'm sure I pronounced it wrong. It's K-O-L-Y-S-A-N-K-A. Now, I had to order this one in from Poland. On the front cover, it sort of looks like an Adams Family thing. And when it arrived, it came in this sort of book format. And every single word on this box was in Polish. Of course it was. It took me 20 minutes just to navigate the front screen menu. I can tell you that much. It was a nightmare. Had Google Translate on the go, just trying to figure out how do I press play. But when I actually saw it, thankfully, it did have a subtitles option. So I got that running. Uh, and when I actually saw it, it was nothing like The Adams Family. It's quite an original take on like this vampire setup. There is a family collecting victims and storing them in a barn uh, just in order to feed them, them whenever the need arrives. It's comedy gold, I tell you. Another foreign language film up next, Kidnapped. This is a French-Spanish home invasion movie. It's proper bleak, and I mean bleak. Uh, it's also quite Moorish as you're watching it. You want to go to that next scene. You want to know what happens to the characters kidnapped. That one, very good. Next up, Burning Bright. And the best way to describe this one, and not many have seen it, according to Letterbox, that is, I would say, uh, I think Joe Exotic. He's a husband, and the makers of this film just want to reinvent Cujo, but with a tiger in the lead role. Boom. There you go, I've described it. That's Burning Bright. Also, another home invasion movie after this, we have In Their Sleep. This one is from France, and it contains a switcheroo, this one. It's a little bit more sexy in places, but it still keeps that bleak-as-hell vibe. Following that, we have a rare inclusion of a zombie flick. It's called Rambok, Berlin Undead, and Rambok is spelled R-A-M-M-B-O-C-K. This one is a German, oh fudge, there's zombies everywhere, I'm going to lock myself in the apartment, it's that type of movie. The acting is great, the pacing's really tight, it lifts above the average run-of-the-mill zombie invasion movie, but you know, it is still a zombie invasion flick, so just be aware, if you're not going to dig that, you're not going to dig it. And holy crap pants, I also watched Piranha 3D, also known as Piranha. Now, I don't often come across a lot of these, but this is definitely a case of this one is so bad that it's actually good. Uh, they completely knew that going in. Uh, it stars Elizabeth Shue, Jerry O'Connell, Kelly Brook, yep, uh, Ving Rames. They're all predictably phoning it in. It really shows, and it is brilliant. Now, back in the world of serious filmmaking, we have the BBC's 2010 retelling of the dementia classic, Whistle and I'll Come to You. It's a real slow burn, this one. It stars John Hurt in the lead. 
it's wonderful. It's so enchanting. It's in a real short watch at 52 minutes. There's no excuse not to really with this one. Whistle and I'll come to you. And then I finally got round to watching The Colour Out of Space. Not that one. No, not that one. This is the German take on that Lovecraftian tale. But as well as that Nicolas Cage new one, also look out for 1965's Die Monster Die. That also tackles this story. And I haven't seen it yet, so I can't lay judgment on it. But with this one, what really wins me over is the cinematography. It is superb. The atmosphere is so downbeat. And if you know the story, of course it is. It's exactly what you expect. In fact, throughout the whole movie, the use of colour here is so tastefully done. I would definitely recommend it. It is the German take on the colour out of space. Senentunchi. Yeah, I think that's how you would pronounce this one. This is really weird. Uh, I'm going to spell that for you. It's S-E-N-N-E-N-T-U-N-T-S-C-H-I. As you can guess, it's not an English language film. This is from Switzerland. Uh, it's based in the Swiss Alps, and it is a beautiful looking movie. It's unsettling. It's witchy. It's got that witchy vibe. Totally gets under your skin. Oh, God, it just is so good. But you might be asking, well, if it's that good, why did you put it here in your also-rans? Well, I'll tell you as to why. There are four rape scenes in just five minutes runtime on this thing. It's overkill. It ruined, for me, what is just this stunning piece of work. Uh, and I get sometimes it's essential to move the plot along and character development needs moving along. And if it's a rape that triggers that, I get it. You can't ignore the rape. But this is just so unnecessarily told in such a gratuitous way. It's just the wrong side of the line for me. I'm really disappointed that this one took that path. Yeah, I'm not even going to pronounce it again. I spell it out for you, for goodness sake. But I know that you can currently watch it free of charge on Amazon Prime. Now, one place above that is all about evil. This is 100% fun. It feels like it was made on someone's credit card. It's a love letter to B-movie cinema making. And at the same time, it's full of bloody kills, camp characters, crazy dialogue. I would 100% recommend it. Now, now we get to Splice. Where do we even begin with this? I mean, Adrian Brody, Sarah Polly, they are scientists. They're splicing genes to create some new entities. And at one point, they mix in some human DNA into the equation. And then you've got yourself this grossy, freaky, incesty monster movie uh, where you root for absolutely nobody. There are no lovable characters here. Everyone's horrible. But this is infinitely watchable. I don't know what to say about it. That splice. Now, heading over to my neck of the woods, where I was born, we go to Australia for a film called Red Hill. The doctor said we should move somewhere quiet, away from the city. Cross Street, 9am, Jimmy Conway break out of the maximum security prison at Western Bay. Conway was convicted of murdering his wife and the attempted murder of a Red Hill police officer. We all know what we're dealing with here. Jimmy Conway rides into this town. He'll be bringing hell with him. Now, 
people of a certain age may remember Vinny from Home and Away. He also, of course, played Stackhouse from True Blood. And in Red Hill, he is the new sheriff in town. This one, it's an intense, it's fun, it's a thrill ride all the way through. Looking at the cover, I expected nothing. The ratings are so-so, but I had a real good time watching this. Red Hill is one that you need to get on your lists. Now, me and Benjamin Bowles, we talk about this in one of our chats coming up. Uh, this one is called Buried. Yes, 911. Buried in a coffin in the ground. You have to help me. You have to help me. I can't breathe. How did you end up in the coffin, sir? My convoy was ambushed. I got hit in the head. I blacked out, and that's the last thing I remember. Now, Buried is a tense as hell thrill ride as well. But all you have here is just a man in a box. Luckily, that man is Ryan Reynolds. And people actually went out and saw this in the cinemas. Of course, of course it's great. But it still amazes me that people got off their bums, went into the cinema just to see one man in a box for 90 minutes. Now, somehow, this is my third watch. And I think that's enough. I, I get it. Ryan Reynolds is fantastic in it, honestly. Recommend, yes. And finally, right at the highest end of these 6 out of 10s, told you we'd get through that, we have Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. Of course you've already seen this film, but I have to mention, why isn't it in my top 10? Well, I can tell you why. I think Martin Scorsese, he thinks it's way cleverer than it actually is. It's overlong, of course it is, it's Martin Scorsese. But at the same time, there is a great movie here, just screaming to get out. As I say, no doubt you've all seen it, you've all got your own opinions, but I would definitely head over to Netflix and catch it if you haven't. I think there is a case of too many people loving this one that you cannot ignore it if you haven't already seen it. You've got to be part of that conversation because you might love it too. It just didn't excite me enough to ever watch the thing again. Unlike all them 6 out of 10s, these 7 out of 10s, these are piles of lush. We've got 6 of these coming up, they're always fun. I am more than happy to re-watch them. Definitely, if you've not seen them, stick them on your lists. So first of all, worth a re-watch, is the underloved Great White Shark that is going to bite your bloody legs off roller coaster ride that is The Reef. Yep, yeah, I think that one's better than Shutter Island. What of it? What are you going to do? What of it? Following that, we've got the masterful and so well executed Bedeviled. At its core, this is a revenge movie, but it never treads where you think it's going to tread. There are some horrific scenes in here, and I think they're all completely justified this time around. And if you do watch this, be aware, it will take you to some dark places, so be warned in advance. It is pretty harrowing from the off. But not only that, there's just some fantastic shots, some great cinematography, fantastic sets as well. I've got to mention them. And this kicks off from the get-go and it ends right on the final scene. There is an island that morphs into a woman or a woman that morphs into an island, should I say, at the very end. It's a hard recommend from me. Sticking with those hard recommends, another foreign language film here. Not so many people have seen this one. It is called The Last Circus. Now, this is another Spanish-French collaboration but at its heart, this is just a love story, which unfortunately, scene by scene, it just simply spirals all out of control for everyone involved. Uh, if crazed clowns, macho tosspot women beaters, it ain't your thing, then be aware this will trigger you all over the place. 
This one is quite, quite mad. One place above that is, uh, oh, this is an interesting one. Okay, so M. Night Shyamalan, he produced Devil. Basic synopsis, five people in a lift, one of them's a devil. Easy. Next up, Paranormal Activity 2. So this takes my number 12 spot. It's no stone cold classic like the first one, but holy hell. If this one isn't just a great extension of that first, it contains those great pool cleaner bits. Don't forget the pans. Always be looking at the pans. The cupboard bit, oh, the Alsatian, all the stuff that happens on those stairs. It's creepy. It makes me shudder. The scares are fantastic in this. Paranormal Activity 2 works. And here we are, right at the end of the also-rans. Number 11 in my book is... A Christmas movie. Yeah, a Christmas movie. It's become a bit of a staple for me. Every single year, I'm watching this. All the way from Finland, Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. It is addictive. It's full of great set pieces. I especially love those dozens of skinny, naked old men running around in the snow. Makes me chuckle to myself every time I see it. I am sure if you haven't seen this one yet, it will do the same for you. Again, Every year, this one becomes more popular than it did in the last year. I'm sure you've already seen it, but if you haven't, sort yourself out. Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. And that's it. I hope you've taken note of some of those. Maybe you haven't got round to seeing them all. Maybe you have. Maybe I've missed out a ton. Just let me know. Here is the Year in Horror Top 10 of 2010. Sometimes as a horror night, you don't want the full-on, deep, slow burn that finishes with an ambiguous ending, which makes you ponder like all those artistic choices of the shot composition and all the lighting. Sometimes you just want popcorn. You want an event movie. You want some summer fun. You know, sometimes you do want the film equivalent of a father knocking his two sons' heads together. Enter director Nimrod Antil. That's right, that is the same guy that directed Metallica's Through the Never movie. And I hope one day I get to talk about that. So yes, as I was saying, enter Nimrod Antle and enter the world of Predators. What's the last thing you remember? All of a sudden there was a light and then I was falling. I was supposed to be executed two days ago. And I was in combat. So was I. Black Ops. Yakuza. We need to work as a team. Does this look like a team-orientated group of individuals to you?
guys, that moment you've all been waiting for. Here is the letterboxed synopsis. Fear is reborn. A mercenary reluctantly leads a motley crew of warriors who soon come to realise they've been captured and deposited on an alien planet by an unknown nemesis. With the exception of a peculiar physician, they all are cold-blooded killers, convicts, death squad members, hunters who have now become the hunted. Now, after hearing that trailer, and of course the expert reading there of the above synopsis, you already know all you need to know going into Predators. It's not got that magic that part one has, but it definitely rivals part two and betters the Alien vs Predator series by miles. The opening shots, they bring you right into the action. And even though you've seen this all before, a group of people that are brought together, not of their own volition, and have to work as a team to fight this common enemy, it's standard. I've seen it all in the Alien franchise. I've seen it in the Saw franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I've even seen it in the Tremors franchise. It is a common trope. But I was never once bored, and I can honestly say I actually had actual fun with this. And after watching it, do I feel like I want any more additions in this Predator money-making machine? Not really, but I definitely wouldn't want this one eradicated from the canon. I liked it so much that it is here in my number 10 spot. Which brings us to this. Uh, here is me old mucker, Daniel Sargent. He has been my mate for over 20 years. We played in bands together and we've co-hosted a music podcast called Different Times Podcast. Uh, that was for two years together. We know each other pretty well. So here is my chat with Daniel talking about all things Predators. Hello, Mr. Daniel Sargent. How are you going? Good, you? Dude, I am good. And I'm all the better for seeing your face. It's a good face. Been using good it for face. years. If only in the podcast medium you could see your face. <laughs> I actually had a bit of a mess up earlier. I'll go back to work tomorrow for like the first time in since the start of November and it's almost January now. Um, so oh, I've got to cut my hair because I was getting a bit... Um, but I only had enough to do my face. So I've got a beard's gone, but I've still got horrible, bald, middle-aged man hair that I need to get rid of. It looks perfect to me. I'm, I'm not normally attracted to men but <laughs> I don't know why anyway uh welcome to a year in horror second episode that you've been a guest on permanent resident here at year in horror now uh, we're going to talk about a film that I had no idea whether you like and by the end of this hopefully the audience will know whether you like it it's predators 2010 mate 2010 I think of this as a recent film but it's a decade old I don't think a decade is too long. If you think about other things that we were doing 10 years ago, like, yeah, it's fucking long. You're right. That is crazy long. But I thought this film was like part seven or something in this franchise. It turns out it's actually the third one. Yeah. So I think where I thought exactly the same thing, but you've got the, all the Alien versus Predator films as well. So that sort of skews it a bit. Yeah, Predator, Alien versus Predator, and then the, the follow-up. Fans will not often put them in the same, the same sort of canon. And when you watch the second one, you can really see why. 
like that second Alien versus Predator movie has to be seen to be believed. It's like as rubbish as Troll 2, maybe. You know, it's bad. <laughs> uh, but that first one, I really loved it, and I don't see why that can't be part of the um, the, the ether uh, of Predator. I don't see why. Can you remember seeing Alien versus Predator? Mate, I remember reading the books. You know when you go to an airport, you go to WH Smith's and buy a book for the journey, or used to. Standard. Um Alien versus Predator book well, that exists. I'm having it because that was like before stuff like that was widely known on the internet. Uh, well, I don't think there really was internet then. Must have been ninety seven, ninety eight. Was it like a graphic novel? No, novel. Uh, just a novel, novel. A book. I might still have it somewhere. Let's get into this. It the uh, it all opens up right. People are dropping from the sky. Like, this opening premise, it pulled me in. I was really excited by it. Now, I've only seen this film twice. Um, once a couple of years ago and once for this. And it, I felt exactly the same again. I felt like I'm re- instantly focused on what's going on. I'm really excited. Like, I thought it was a great way to open up, like, a, a new episode of the Predator franchise. Well, Nimrod, who directed it, Nimrod. Is he named after a Green Day album, do you think? I really hope he is named after the Green Day album. Uh, it's Nimrod Antel. He said it wanted to be aliens to... He wanted Predators to be aliens to alien to Predator. Does that make sense? So yeah. he was like, in his head, fuck Predator 2. That's... Don't like that. That's gone. I want this to be the follow-up that's more action-based. Yeah, after hearing that, I can see it. Yeah, just drop it out the sky. Immediately they land, and then a minigun comes out. It's like the third person, the big Russian guy, uh, or Ukrainian, whatever he is. And it's like, oh, that's a nod to Blaine with his one in the other film. And that's when it was like a bit, oh, you didn't really need to do that. We've all seen Predator, and if you haven't seen Predator, then you're not going to know anyway. And there was a a few bits like that all the way through. Did you come off the original Predator loving it just like like the world I think people of our age surely like that's one of those go to yet yeah, that's the standard brilliant film do you feel the same way about that? Absolutely it's up there with like Robocop and Aliens and Nightmare on Elm Street and all those like classic 80s you know you'd go into the video shop and not be able to reach it because it was up high with all the uh, sci-fi films because it's sci-fi not horror I always, how dare you, I always remember this one and Running Man were my go-tos for, for many Love a year. Running Man, Predator, Running Man, a little bit later, Total Recall because of the, you know, three boobies. And then even going back, like I'd say back further to like um, Raw Deal and stuff like that with Arnie, anything that he was in, I would watch. Kindergarten Cop came out, Dad, cinema, please. Off we went. Oh, in that case, were you a commando guy? I love commando. <laughs> Absolutely love it. When I first watched it, like there was that Arnie buzz, like, and as I say, it was at the time it was Predator and Running Man, and I was getting well into like anything with Arnie's name attached, and I even liked Conan. But when I tried Commando, just didn't just like no i'm not into this this is this is not what i'm after and i guess it might be because all that sci-fi any weirdness is gone because this is pure action hero now but i see predator as a pure action hero film that just happens to have an alien in it mate i'm gonna punch you soon it's pure horror i don't get where the horror comes from 
apart from like there's a monster jumping out at you. Hey, that's all it takes. Us horror fans, we take anything at all we can get. Oh, I want that in my genre. Let's talk about shut up. Talk about the casting of Adrian Brody. Um, I thought, like seeing him on this poster initially, I just thought, what? That is not going to work. Like I, I've I've seen this guy uh, in the Pianist, uh, that Nazi film, and I just couldn't picture him. Did, did it take you out of it at all, or were you convinced yet yeah, he's well casted? No, I thought it was a really good choice. Even though at the end he did end up with his top off and a six pack covered in mud, like to have just sort of like a skinny, although he's not really skinny, is he? He was still bulky, but he wasn't like a bodybuilder like Arnold Schwarzenegger. If they'd have got like, I don't know, like who would be a modern equivalent of Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Tom Hardy or someone like that. Sure. At his top off within the first 20 minutes running round, then it would have been like, oh yeah, see what you're doing. Well, I guess it put some sort of gravitas within the film. It wasn't just another Predator sequel because this was a, an Academy Award winning actor that they've got like to play this role. And I do know that uh, watching a couple of the extras that are on YouTube that he did bulk up for it. So he was a, like this skinny man. But as far as I can see on the on the film... He's still a pretty skinny man. He's just like got, got some muscles on top of his uh, bones. But I guess that's realism. Like, but I don't know if I want realism when I'm I'm with a Predator movie. Yeah, I do it want needed, that no, 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 It needed that little bit of gravitas to sell it in the first place, I think. Like if it had just been big guns and big muscles chasing around an alien again, it would have flopped. That him being in it gave it that little bit of, oh, that's a interesting choice let's give it a chance sort of thing did you watch it when it first came out then i don't think i didn't go to the cinema to see it but i would have watched it as soon as it came out on dvd or sky or whatever yeah it took me uh, a few years to to actually go to it because i think i just think uh, the alien versus predator 2 it just put me off both franchises i was just like no longer interested like as far as I was concerned, it was done, and I may, in a way, I still do. I still don't think either of them have been rebooted nicely. Uh, what I want, even though with the Alien franchise, they've sort of gone in other directions, I, I still think that joining those two films together, unlike Freddy versus Jason, like I think this it sort of crippled it a little bit for me, and like, I sort of over overegged it. Uh, I think if you're into books and the comic books they were really good and the films just didn't really do it justice let's talk about uh this fella that i like see his face in every film uh <laughs> seems to be every film that i'm watching right now danny treo i think is how you pronounce his surname i think he's great in this and i think i've gone through everything i own of his now and i've had a little rewatch, and i think this is my the best i've seen him like the, the most convincing, he's very typecast in like pretty much every role he's in. Well, do you know much about him? No, no, I know very little about him. Like, what do you know about him? I do know he was a real gangster that was like in prison. I'm pretty sure, and just got a bit in a film somewhere. Like maybe one of um, Robert Rodriguez's early films, like El Mariachi or something like that. I'd have to double check. But I think he got in that Robert Rodriguez liked him and uses him in. Loads of stuff, which is how he's ended up being in this, because it's Robert Rodriguez produced it. 
I think his inclusion in this made it work for me. It felt like uh, this wouldn't be made now this way, like picking a different race. Like we got a black dude from the Bronx, we got a white guy who's clearly going to win in the end. We got a pretty Chinese lady, we got a yakuza guy, we got a doctor who's very really clever. No, who can be white? We've got you know, and it's like all the different racial stereotypes laid out to die in order of. <laughs> Die, die in order of your popular race. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like they've tried to make it PC, and by doing so, they've made it really un-PC. <laughs> I get you. I find directors from 2010 are doing that in a lot of horrors, and they're doing a lot of that. Like, they are still doing the, the typical thing of uh, get make sure there's a black guy in there, black woman in there, but make sure they die first. Uh, and that sort of thing still is running riot as... as I know we said earlier, 10 years seems like um, ages ago, but yeah, it, it's crazy. It's only 10 years ago that this was still happening and it doesn't really happen anymore. Like you say, like this, this whole, uh, the way, way that they approach that now is they're a lot more um, understanding of what people will tolerate and, and what they won't. With this, critics weren't so kind with it. Uh, that's for sure. I've read a few reviews. Some were middling, and a lot of them were, this is not very good. But it made a lot of money uh, at the time. It did really well. As I say, on my first watch, I really enjoyed it, enough to put this at my number 10 spot in 2010. This is the question, Dan. Would you recommend it? Yeah, 100%. It's a part of the law. If you like Predator and you haven't seen it, then it's worse ways to spend two hours, isn't there? Well, is there? <laughs> is there? I mean, where would you rank it in um, the Predator franchise? I know that you recently watched uh, The Predator. Yeah, I watched that the night before just because I was excited about watching this, but I wanted to have this fresh in my head for today. So I watched that the night before, and that was awful. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't okay. like that at all. Uh, right, so we're going we're gonna to rank them. Predator is number one. Yep. Predator 2 is number two. Predator 3 is number three. Yep. And Predator 4 is number 4. That doesn't look very good for the Predator franchise, does it? But 2, to me, is as iconic as the first one. When I like put it on when I was younger, like rented it from the video shop or whatever, didn't have a clue what to expect because didn't really you know see trailers or anything back then. It was just cool, it's got Predator in it, better watch that. And I loved it. Like You saw like, you know, the firefight at the scene and it's like, Gone from the jungle to the urban jungle. Absolutely amazing. And then, oh, good. Oh, that's what sucked about this. When I wanted to turn it off was when Lawrence Fishburne appeared as the mad guy. Yeah. that's That sort of seems to be splodged in there as a, a filler. Do anything. They just needed to fill an extra 20 minutes of film. And do you know about the conspiracy about the trailer? No. No. There's one scene in the film, I can't remember exactly where it is, I think it's uh, towards the end, when Adrian Brody's there, and you know the iconic three lights of the Predator's shoulder cannon yeah, yeah. appear on him, and he's like, oh shit, better run away. In the trailer, uh, they fudged it so that one light comes on, and then loads of different, like, all, like, all, like come all over him, so think, shit, he's been chased by like a whole like squad of Predators, which, had you seen that at the time, you're thinking we're going to get, you know big gang of predators coming after him and then you went and it was like what it was uh, a bit disappointing 
Well, they did that with um, the trailer for Rogue One, I remember. That's a bit different. You mean with the TIE Fighter coming up? Yeah, Because yeah. that's, that's something that could just be cut out for story reasons, whereas this was blatantly just to... Get some bums on the seats. Yeah, quick. exactly. All right, okay, we've talked about the Predator franchise a little bit there, and I'm so glad that you have recommended it, because I, I as I say, I really enjoy this. I think the only the dicky part in it uh, is when they add that Fishburne character in, just for, uh, for the sake of adding some extra time in, as far as I can see, to make it up to a, a decent length movie. One other bit I wanted to mention, and it fits in at the end, so it fits here, the end of Predator, uh z- when they're walking away and he goes, got to get off this planet. I want to know how. You can't fire a fucking Predator spaceship, Brody. How? Yeah, that that's the thing. I like, I like how that's stopped and we don't find out. But then you would expect a sequel. And especially as that was a real big success. And Brody has said he would um, consider any offers to, to go back as that character. So... What's stopping them? Like, that's a real weird one. Where there's something that's going to make bank like Predator, then went on to The Predators. So something must have happened. It's, it, it's bizarre how they didn't follow with that story. Yeah. The end. Daniel Sargent, thank you so much for coming on. See you soon. what i was saying about event summer movies that score was by john denby from predators and it totally evokes that feel for me i love this it's a huge bombastic action-fueled popcorn blast of a soundtrack it's perfect for such a ridiculous film i also love that in places it rips directly from star wars as well uh, and i think that takes some balls particularly that jawa motif but a lot of the times like for a whole two minutes or so, it's like that end scene in Star Wars where the Death Star's about to blow up and all that music starts to swell. Imagine that, but for a whole soundtrack and you're pretty close to where this is. It's not going to be staying with me forever, but you know, neither is the movie. My only criticism here is that I'd like more tribal drums to bring out that Amazonian feel in places. But apart from that, this is great. So where can you currently watch this? Well... If you want to watch it free of charge, Just Watch tells me that if you live in the USA and you watch it on Tubi, then you can see it with ads, but it's cash free. Otherwise, it is a VOD rental, or you can buy it on VOD, of course. But I wouldn't bother with any of that. It is dirt cheap to buy this on a Blu-ray, but just why don't you spend an extra few pounds and you can buy a box set, which includes Predator, Predator 2, and of course this one, Predators. As for podcasts... Well, here's Johnny's reviews. If you go to episode number 493, there is a great one there. Also try out You Watch That, with a question mark after it. You Watch That podcast from the 8th of May 2020. If you're looking for a more in-depth breakdown of the film, that's where you'll find it. And there we go, my number 10, Predators.
In 2010, according to director Christopher Smith, this film was shot in chronological order. Now, due to the expense this often incurs, it's a rare occurrence indeed. It joins an oddball bunch of horrors also filmed in this very same way. Um, off the top of my head, I know The Shining is one of them. I wrote a list. Here it is. Yeah, The Shining, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Wreck, uh, The Dawn of the Dead remake, and one that they really couldn't do any other way, Buried from 2010, which I mentioned earlier on. Yeah, so it's not unheard of, but it is rare. And Christopher Smith here did it in an altogether more middle-aged based nightmare sort of a way my number nine choice for this year 2010 it's the occult laden black death what's that for split any man from his arsehole to his apple the fumes of the dead hung in the air like poison a plague more cruel, more pitiless than war had descended upon us. <laughs> this was not God's work, but witchcraft. Word has reached the bishop of a village that does not suffer as the rest. I must see for myself how this village is kept safe. This village we're headed to, they have cast God aside. In his place sits a demon. are among us as you will find out soon enough I am death vengeance is mine God's fury rains down on you I really got a good feeling from that one so hopefully this will do the same to you lot that haven't seen it yet you'll give it a go because whenever I scroll past it on Netflix it always does look a little bit shitty <laughs> it always does look a bit unappealing anyway let's get to the letterbox synopsis in an age of darkness one man will face the ultimate battle against evil as the plague de- <laughs> sorry He's getting silly now. Um, uh, Where were we? As the plague decimates medieval Europe, rumours circulate of a village immune from the plague. There is talk of a necromancer who leads the village and is able to raise the dead. A fearsome knight joined by a cohort of soldiers and a young monk are charged by the church to investigate. Their journey is filled with danger, but it's upon entering the village that their true horror begins yes indeed Uh, this one is often underrated it is always overlooked and i can see why yes let's have a little chat about black death okay so my mvp of course it goes to sean bean and i totally get this he can be seen as a one-trick pony and yet he pretty much plays that same typecast character here that he's always done in these types of films See Lord of the Rings, Troy, Game of Thrones, National Treasure, The Hitcher. He gives you the same role, just different variants of it. But I've always dug his acting style. He plays such a great villain. And in Black Death, it's a bit of an odd one because he plays this middle ground. He, of course, thinks he's a good guy, as I imagine most villains do. 
but he also plays the bad guy. It all depends on your point of view and, of course, also where exactly you are in the movie. And never are you more conflicted on his character as early on in Black Death when he saves this accused witch from a burning. woman accused of she poisoned our well and a pact with the devil now half our village is dead i offered a simple blessing over our water to keep everyone safe liar i did nothing wrong liar the dying began after she was seen at the well you have a confession plenty of us saw her cast a spell now she must burn despair what remains of our village move aside i will not ask again This is the scene that really sets the tone in the movie. And it's always with a scene like this that Sean Bean, he gives his characters a little more depth, a little more gravitas, and you take the whole thing seriously. And I think that's where people that have a problem with him, they get that idea that he's being a bit po-faced and a bit too serious for every single role, when sometimes a little bit of levity might make things work a, a bit better. But it really works here. And it's not just those lines that he's delivering. It's the way he delivers those lines. It really pulls me into the film. And I'm not going to spoil this, of course. I'm not. I promise you. I'm not going to tell you if he lives or dies because that will act as a definite spoiler for this particular film. But I do have to admit, because it's Sean Bean, I did watch this film with a whole stack of thoughts in my head focusing simply on the will he, will he not die. It's rather unfortunate, of course, that that's where we are in 2020, 2021 with Sean Bean films. Also, on a side note, just thinking of this as I'm chatting away here, he had this great role and a completely different role and an unusual type of unusual type of role in the 2020 film called Possessor. I totally would recommend that to you. If you're a Sean Bean on the fencer, that might switch you over onto his side. Now, at its heart, Black Death is an occult, witchery-focused film that is, of course, played against the backdrop of the Black Death. And one word of warning, though, it's a bit of a heartbreaker, okay? It can break your heart if you get too invested in it. The human toll here of all these events, once they've taken place, it leaves these characters broken, and some of it is beyond harrowing. So if you're not up for that, maybe just go for Uncle Buck. Now we're going on to one of my favourite parts of these talks, the soundtrack. I adore Christian Hansen's score here. And even though it's very much an edgy, creep-laden score, definitely my mind was conjuring up some period-appropriate melodies and some instrumentation here and there. Whether it is accurate, I couldn't tell you, but it does really work. I'm going to play a little snippet of a song for you now called Banquet. And I wanted to play you that one because what you just heard 
that little snippet of banquet it is played over this only lull in the film and it's such a short lull a very short time it sort of gives you a reprieve from all the ominous tone of that film and it's called banquet of course because it is soundtracking the banquet that they do have I think I love this so much because it's got this playfulness and it feels so of the time that it's meant to represent, in my head anyway, as does the rest of the score. It never feels broad and overbearing. It never feels huge or ridiculous. Everything's quite minimal and this helps it because it then sounds quite confined and quite dark and it makes you feel like you're one with the characters at certain points. It totally adds to that environment and the world building. So, yeah, would I recommend it? Yes, of course I would. I would really try and find Black Death. I'm sure I listened to it on Spotify. I definitely don't have a hard copy of it. So, yes, yeah, Spotify the hell out of that one. And with Black Death, yes, where is the best place where you can see this? Well, it is available most everywhere on VOD. I've never seen the Blu-ray overpriced. It is always crazy cheap. And you can often find it in Poundland as well, so you can pick it up for a quid or two there. As for podcasts, I listen to both of these and they're both great. Werewolf Ambulance did one on Black Death in March 2020. And for a left field pick, a little bit of uh, of an unusual step for me. But before I went in for my last rewatch, I listened to this one. It was really interesting. Just information about the plague itself, the Black Death itself. Uh, try out. Our Fake History. It's a podcast from January 2020. That was a truly great listen as well. So yeah, those two. So before, go to Our Fake History, watch the film, and then listen to them talk about it on Werewolf Ambulance. My number nine pick, Black Death, in the bag. Let's move on. So with number nine done and dusted, we are going to head over to a space on this podcast where horror just doesn't quite fit. But these movies, they can't be ignored. You're right, you're here. This is Sci-Fi Corner with an added splash of fantasy. Sci-Fi Corner. Lovely, 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 lovely. Right, okay. Welcome to the third edition of Sci-Fi Corner. With that added splash of fantasy, we are now going to go through a couple of stats. So last month we visited 2001 and the movie The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings. That was the winner. Uh, It was a definite non-sci-fi movie, 100% fantasy. And I also remember that we kicked off in 1984 with the film 1984 winning. And also that is not a sci-fi movie. So, so far, sci-fi corner has been a bit of a bust. But I've got news. In 2010, finally and definitively, the number one spot is occupied by a sci-fi movie. Now, I wondered if we would ever hit a sci-fi number one. And we have... Plus, as an added bonus, it's also got elements of horror in it as well, but that is enough spoilers. Let's dig a little bit more into some of the incredible and not-so-incredible genre flicks from 2010, shall we? (music) 
and we will start with this utter failure, but it isn't a 0 out of 10, a 1 out of 10. It's not complete crap. It's a 4 out of 10. And that's where we're going to start off. So yes, this 4 out of 10 has Denzel Washington starring in this religious hogwash post-apocalyptic feature that is called The Book of Eli. Ah, it's in Braille. Good twist, bro. Following that, we have three nothing really special movies, but they're worth a watch if you're desperate. Maybe. I know I won't be watching them again, but these are the five out of ten average scorers. So we're going to kick off with Hot Tub Time Machine. That is a comedy that does exactly what it says on the tin. Unfortunately, only about one in 15 jokes hit. So, you know, well, at least that's a better ratio than that whole scary movie franchise. I guess it's got that going for it. Uh, also, we have Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. And surprisingly, this kept all those great ingredients. It had all the correct ingredients within it. Unfortunately, somehow, only Helena Bonham Carter really understood what movie she was actually in. I came away from that one really disappointed, really disappointed. I was hoping for a lot more. And it was such a massive success as well. Massive success. Anyway, continuing on. After that, we land on Womb, a.k.a. Clone, starring one of my favourite actors, Eva Green, who in this feels sexy incest feelings for a cloned son stroke boyfriend. That is exactly where this film goes. I'd actually give this one a go if I was yourself. It's a slow-burning one, sure, but it it is effectively creepy, at least it has that. So that's those 5 out of 10s. Uh, we now move to the 6 out of 10s. These guys are batting just above average, but they are not so great on that rewatchability factor, so bear that in mind. What do we have here? Just going through my list, here we go. First up is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Uh, that is the one where Ron Weasley goes all emo and is also most likely known as the one where your kids are most likely to fall asleep whilst watching it. After that snooze fest, we've got Doctor Who in his Christmas special called A Christmas Carol. And I think with this one, as long as you don't think about it, this one at least gives you that warm Xmas feeling. Uh, there's floating fish in it as well. What is really weird is that everyone starts singing on this Christmas-themed planet, I guess. Uh, yeah, damn it. I, I don't really want to think about this one at all, but I enjoyed watching it. I'm still not going to come back, though. Following that up, uh, what about that DreamWorks animation classic, How to Train Your Dragon? I imagine if you have children, you've already seen this at least 50 times, so you don't need me to refresh your memory on that one. Better than that, though, never let me go. Sorry, just to interrupt myself, I should have mentioned, if you do have a pen or a pencil or you're fast on your fingers on the phone, probably best make a list from here on, because they're all winners. So yeah, Never Let Me Go was the next one, and as much as I dislike Keira Knightley's acting, and I really do, uh, I like this film, but there is a massive issue. I think that it would have received a higher score from myself and just in general if they'd only answered one simple question. If these cloned for body parts young adults, uh, if they wanted to extend their lives, then why didn't they just run? Why didn't they just hide? All it would have taken is like a 20 second shot of the, some minor character going through some sort of brainwashing treatment. That would have been enough to bring me on board. So yeah, I left this one fuming. It could have been so good. 
Okay, next up is The Secret World of Ariati. And that one, of course, if you've seen it, you'll know it is quite the lovely watch. Lovely is a very apt word for it. Just like Christmas Carol that I mentioned earlier, it does give you those lovely warm feels. And it was another first watch for me as well. All those Studio Ghibli movies, they are on Netflix. So it's really easy to get them into your eye and ear holes. Unfortunately, this one was rather slight. And it was based on the story of the borrowers. I don't know if you know that, but yeah, if you already know the story, it's a really good version of it. Definitely worth a watch, but no more. And this one is one of the lower rated Studio Ghibli movies. So maybe, just maybe, I'm going to hold out and get a few more under my belt before I make an informed decision on that genre as a whole. Yes. Okay, finally, we get to Tron Legacy. Now, with this one, I have to admit, I really enjoyed it while I was watching it. But as soon as it finished, I completely forgot about everything that I'd just seen. It's definitely not a sticker, but it was great popcorn fun, I thought, anyway. I know that reviews were quite lukewarm on this one at the time, which is what initially put me off. But yeah, watching this one is pretty cool. And I have to admit, I'm quite looking forward to watching that original one. I haven't seen that one for years and years And I would also have to mention here that even though the film might not get the love, people tend to really rate that Daft Punk soundtrack. Rightio, that's all those 6 out of 10s done. From now on, we're really hitting some sort of stride. All these I would recommend, all these I would re-watch. Unfortunately, there's just two more. (laughs) That's it. So, first up is Inception at 7 out of 10. I didn't really like this at all the first time I watched it. I really was not keen. Uh, I watched it at the pictures and sure it was grand and it was a spectacle and everyone at the cinema was whooping and ahhing and yeah, I, I, I get the whole fascination of those digital effects. I do understand that it was a game changer, but it really didn't affect me at all, which of course meant I was really going to look forward to this rewatch. And even though I found it better, I must admit this second time around, it hit home a bit more. Still, I think I'm going to have to watch it a few more times, not to get my head around what's going on so much, but just to get over that big summer blockbuster effects spectacular sort of deal that this thing is. So I I did leave it, even though I gave it a 7 out of 10, I did leave this one with this overblown feeling. It's overrated in my eyes. It's just a big special effects fest. If there's anyone left listening to this now, I will continue. 8 out of 10 is all I would give my number one this year around. And it's respectable. It's a respectable score. So sitting at the top of my rather fabulous, if I do say so myself, 2010 sci-fi list is Gareth Edwards' debut full-length feature as a director. Now we are going to talk about all things monsters. They're taking us through the infected zone. It's the only option we've got.
a short while, we're going to head over to Benjamin Bowles and myself chatting away. We do talk about the great lengths that Gareth Edwards went to in order to create this heavy hitter on such a small budget. It is really interesting stuff. And that low budget was really low. Half a million. And you wouldn't guess at all by looking at the screen. There are some beautiful scenery setup shots here with rich colour grading going on. And also a little tidbit that I like is that Edwards, he cast a real life couple, Scoot McNary and Whitney Abel. They were the two leads that do a very good job. Uh, they do exactly what's needed from them. They're not really stand out though. This is pretty much just a road movie. Effectively, the plot is you are in the wrong place. You need to get to the right place. It's simple. In fact, let's hear what Letterboxd has to say. Let's fire up this synopsis. After six years, they're no longer aliens. They are residents. Six years ago, NASA discovered the possibility of alien life within our solar system. A probe was launched to collect samples, but crashed upon re-entry over Central America. Soon after, new life forms began to appear and half of Mexico was quarantined as the infected zone. Today, the American and Mexican military still struggle to contain the creatures, while a journalist agrees to escort a shaken tourist through the infection zone in Mexico to the safety of the US border. Anyway, that gives you the gist. Right now, let's hook up with our regular guest, photographer and filmmaker, Benjamin Bowles, for a chat on Monsters. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Paul. How are you? Regular Ben, regular member of the podcast. I'm doing great. It's good to see you this early in the morning. I like the early morning starts. Do you? Yeah. Well, this is through necessity, but it's good to see your face at 9.07 a.m. <laughs> uh, this is for, for the number one in Sci-Fi Corner. I'm so glad you picked this. This is the film Monsters, 2010, of course. When did you first come across this beast? So I saw this uh, when it first came out in the cinema. I remember I watched it in Cineworld in Ashford. And Big screen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So t uh, 10 years ago, I first saw it. Um, and then I watched it for the second time last night. It must have left a big impact on you, Ben. <laughs> well, it, it, sort of, it sort of did. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the last episode where we discussed Mulholland Drive? And I spent about 15, 20 minutes basically not knowing what to think about this film but loving it now this is kind of similar and I think I like it and I would definitely recommend it um but I think it's it's got some huge pluses and some um huge minuses which obviously we're going to go to but yeah yeah it's uh, it's an interesting film um I think I think it could have been renamed oh well essentially this this is what I think of it if I had to sum it up in a sentence yeah okay yeah. I would say it's planes, trains and automobiles with a, with five minutes of monsters at the end. So what you're saying is this banging comedy vehicle, <laughs> <laughs> which explodes into a little bit of horror at the end. 
Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's no comedy whatsoever. However, the premise is exactly the same. The, the first five minutes says there's, there's the goal of, okay, this, this, these two people have to get there. Um, yeah. And then it's just, follow, and then it's essentially just following their journey um, for 90 minutes. Um, uh, and then, and then there's monsters at the end. But with zero laughs. Absolutely zero laughs. So, yeah. So, it, the premise is exactly the same. That's where it ends. And also, there's no planes. Well, they see some planes. I mean, they on. do see lots of planes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do lots of walking and they, they see lots of planes. Well, this could be because of the incredible low budget that they had going out with this. That uh, director Gareth Edwards got half a meal together, like for, for everything and produce this like what I consider to be a monster and it really is a monster and I can see why they called it monsters I've got an issue with it and I think you might have too is that that synopsis you would want to get over maybe in 45 minutes not the 90 minutes that it takes but the, on my rewatch I sort of loved it and I loved the fact that I knew that it cost so little money and they got so much bang for the buck with considering that amount of money that they spent on it, do you look at it and think, wow, the same as me, they've got a lot of bang? Or do you think it's really flawed because of that? No, absolutely not. I think I think actually if it had, say, 30 to 50 million spent on it, I would be looking at that film thinking, it's okay, no, it's nothing special. However, knowing what went on behind the scene, so the, so the 500K, they used locals um, for the extras, which really adds a... Uh, or uh, it, it makes it quite authentic. Um, a lot of those, a lot of those um, scenes weren't. Um, it was basically a scriptment, so they told the extras where they needed to go, um, but it wasn't scripted. Um, they they filmed without permission for a lot of it. Oh so wow, it was, I didn't know yeah, that. It was, yeah, it was lo- there was loads of guerrilla filming. They filmed on um, quite cheap equipment. Editing took eight months, and actually, it's um, and the special effects that Gareth Edwards did at, in his uh, in his flat uh, took five months, which was an incredible achievement. Um, and you you mentioned that it's uh, ninety minutes, maybe was slightly too long. Um, the first cut, obviously, the first cut is always going to be much longer, but the first cut was four hours long. <laughs> so I mean, that's 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 Lord of the Rings style, isn't it? That's the extended director's cut. Four I hours. would want a Hobbit included uh, within their journey if that was going to happen. My word, four hours of that. Yeah, that'd be a bit baggy, I reckon, because I reckon at ninety-four minutes they could probably shave off fifteen minutes. <laughs> the thing with it is, every time I started to to go, okay, right, they've got to do something now. They did do something now, so I think we got the beats correct. Um, yeah. I particularly remember on my first watch being proper scared when you didn't see a lot of the monster but the monster was trashing the hell out of that um uh, the car or the jeep that they're in that really got me and it was like whoa like i haven't seen a creature properly yet you see like misty uh, sort of television footage and things like that of course uh, ever since cloverfield two years earlier that's you're going to see a lot of that in films going forward but i i just think Every time that I wanted something to happen, it did. So it didn't let me down like that. And then looking back, of course, you don't really pick that out unless you're watching it. Looking back, you just see this, like, in your head, this massive journey. Why did it take all that time to, to get there? But I guess as you're watching it, I didn't really care. No, no. I mean, I, I think that... 
as I said at the very top, there's huge there's huge positives, and I'd absolutely recommend it. I think everybody who is into is into filmmaking is into well not only budget like micro budget filmmaking needs to see it to see what you can achieve through um, time and effort um, and just having a vision and the film itself I mean even if I didn't have any interest in budget filmmaking or how films were made I still think the last scene the last five ten minutes is beautiful and I think that whatever happens I think I actually think that the characters, um, the two protagonists, Sam and Andrew, aren't particularly three-dimensional. They're okay. Um, I, I always, I always, when I'm watching something, especially on a, a film like this where you're spending 90 minutes with two people, I, I th always think to myself, am I really engaged with these characters? And if they died in the next scene, would would I care? And I wouldn't really. <laughs> which is it a shame might up the up the the sort of character definition of the other person that lives if that had happened well well yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah you know all those negatives aside and the things that i could sort of pick holes in firstly who am i to pick holes in someone who's made that film for five hundred thousand pounds secondly that last scene is is absolutely incredible um and i know i just think it's the perfect it's the perfect payoff um, and so, and if you get your ending right, the, the thing is, if you in a film like this, if you get the ending right, and I think it's the, it was a perfect ending, it just makes up for so much. And if it was a kind of a sloppy ending, I think I might feel slightly different about the film. I'd still appreciate the technical side of it, but I wouldn't appreciate it as a story. Now, because of the ending and because of how beautiful that was um, and how... Um, yeah, just the whole feel and the mood of the last five or ten minutes, it just put the cherry on the cake for me. I 100% agree. Uh, when I first saw it, a little tear went went down my face because that payoff hit me so well. It was so beautiful to look at. Everything that I'd sat through was worth that wait, and it felt like a film made for me. He'd really connected with me just by including that whole end set piece. It was stunning to look at that cinematography. And when I looked it up, I found out he he did the lot. He did it yeah. all. And yeah. I was so, my word, that's one man's vision. And it got me to the point where like I had a little little blub just because it was so perfect, exactly how I would have wanted that to end. And it was frightening. And like it makes me go, right, where's it go from here? I, I'm not surprised that they as studios picked him up for the Godzilla reboot, and I'm not surprised that he got the Star Wars Rogue One, I think it was. God, I can't remember. Rogue One, I think he did. Um, but there's nothing since. Like I, He's stopped after Godzilla in the Star Wars flick. Do you know what's happened to him? Do you know? No, not a clue. Not a clue. I didn't, I didn't do that much research about what he's done since then. But um, I think what, what he did with Monsters... And we'll talk about a title, I suppose, in, in a couple of minutes as well, which I think is absolutely genius, by the way, um, just because it would get so many people pissed off around about 50 minutes. It's perfect. Anyway, what, what he did with Monsters was, um, and why he obviously got picked up for Godzilla, is because he, he made the monsters human and he made, it wasn't, it wasn't as simple as good versus bad, hero versus villain. There was a nuance to it. There was a subtlety to it. And obviously... Um, Godzilla, which I really liked as well, he he bought the the sort of micro budget feel, the micro budget values and vision, and just 
and then basically put that, those um, ethics and values into a huge, huge budget, which I think worked really, really well. Because whatever happens, whether you're spending 100K or 100 million, people want to engage with the characters, people want that, people want to relate. Um, and, and, and that's a very universal thing. So I think as a genius idea of the uh, producer, you know, seeing this film and saying, oh, I actually think he could do an amazing job with, with a budget. And obviously he did. I think without knowing it, he has uh, made a perfect encapsulation of this current day, like of Trump's America. Like you've got the wall, you've got um, uh, people not being allowed to come into America because of it. You've got illegal aliens, literally aliens. And this was done way before Trump's America. And I'm sure there is, uh, he's not approach this without knowing that sort of feel within the country at the time i i was shocked on that second watch uh, recently of just yeah he's pinpointed exactly what's going on now yep one of my notes was it was ahead of its time in terms of the social issues that it was um bringing up similar to how district nine did it which uh, is another film i love focusing on othering focusing on illegal aliens illegal aliens and uh, sort of putting it into a sort of a sci-fi story. But yeah, totally ahead of its time, totally ahead of its time. I want to go back to something you said about calling it monsters. This film was hugely, hugely uh, divisive amongst the horror fans, amongst monster movie fans, and amongst just fans of movies in general. Do you think that's got a lot to do with it, just calling it monsters? I don't know if if the working title was was monsters but I, I think I think it's so genius because people calling it monsters you're going to get the people that always go to see monster films that want to see That's blood awesome. and guts action you know because of just because of the title and people going in to see that film would be so severely severely disappointed because you don't I mean you see you see uh, a leg here and a leg there you hear a lot of them but essentially it's a it's a buddy movie it's a road movie it's, but i think i think the fact that when you can when you can be divisive with a film it's perfect because it means bums are on seats there's nothing worse than being vanilla that just doesn't do anybody any favors what you want is some people to love and some people to hate that's perfect so i think that if that came from gareth edwards again it's a genius move if it came from um, you know, later down the line in terms of the production company or, you know, should we call it Monsters because it'll be really divisive. I think that's a great move, a marketing move as well. But yeah, I, I just think it's the perfect setup and uh, and yeah, very divisive. But as I said, you, you want to be divisive. You don't want to be, you know, w what else could it be called? It could be, um, I don't know what the working title was, but, <laughs> um, but Monsters, it's one of those that Monsters... The title doesn't sum up the film, but in this way, it works really well. I, I think you're right. Um, looking through the film in my head right now, like you think, all right, you're calling it monsters. Where who else is uh, are monsters within this film? And not really. Like even like the the villains in inverted commas, like the the guy that keeps trying to up their ticket prices and things like that. I don't. I wouldn't call him a monster. He's just you know he's just doing his job and trying to get what he can and not lose money doing it. Yeah, I don't see any monsters throughout this. Uh, and the very way. fact that the, the quote-unquote monsters, um, that they sign off, you know, having a loving embrace and just, you know, just walking off. And I think I'm right in saying is that maybe apart from the opening scene, 
all their attacks, they're always provoked. They're not unprovoked. They're basically defending themselves. You know, so they, they're absolutely, um, they come across, well, Gareth Edwards has put them across and, and has put them as, and that goes back to the title as well, monsters. Who, who are the monsters? Because the actual quote-unquote monsters that, we're, that are meant to be villains aren't that villainous, really. And, um, and he's put a full stop on that with, with, with the final scene. It's funny, isn't it? It's, you, you watch a film, you try and sum it up in a sentence or, or a word or, you know, a feeling that you get. Um, and as I said, like we've, we've gone through, from my point of view, what things, what things really work in the film um, and what things really don't. And that's how I try and look at films, because there's no such thing as a perfect film. Uh, well, apart from It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but there's, a, a, apart from that, there's always going to be films and scenes at work and there's always going to be scenes and, and films overall that, that don't really work for me. This absolutely did work for me, despite um, everything that, that I think is, is, could be improved. However, given the context, given the budget, given the fact that um, this is very early on in his career, um, it's an incredible achievement. And I will just always go back to the scene that will always will stay with me. And that's the beauty of film, just as the closing scene where well, the closing scene and the final shot as well. Very similar uh, kind of thing to um, we saw Saint Maud, yeah, and we've and uh, and and the Saint Maud. Whoever um, anybody who's listening to this hasn't seen Saint Maud, I'm not going to spoil it. But the last millisecond in that sort of makes a film for me. Um, and this is the same kind of thing. Although it's five or ten minutes, the very final shot of um, spoiler alert, them kissing, and then it just fades to black, and then being pulled away is just it's just a, a perfect way to end it. Um, so in a really really long. Um, an elaborate answer to your question. Um, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> and I also like that you now you've penciled yourself in to talk about A Wonderful Life and District 9 <laughs> later on down the line. That's good news. <laughs> ben Bowles, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Paul. Cheers. There we go. It is always cool to chat with Ben and we will hear from him once more a little later on in a year in horror when we discuss the number seven movie. So there's not long to wait. Don't worry. Don't worry. But what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to give you an MVP. And for the very first time in a year in horror, what I'm going to do right now is give this MVP the most valuable player award doesn't go to a person, a director, a character, an actor. No, 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 no. It goes to an actual scene. And this one is a complete stunner. Now, I cannot go into too much detail as it is an utter spoiler for the ending of the film. But let's just say it's the whole of the gas station sequence. Its execution in pacing and tension building is perfection. It puts those huge, big budget blockbusters with millions upon millions thrown at them to shame i wish i could go into more detail but what i would recommend is you watch the film and at the end i'll give you a podcast to listen to where you can get all those facts but make sure you watch it before you do listen to it okay okay so the very last thing about monsters is i have to mention this stuff the score is by john hopkins and it is elegant and it is restrained and it is beautiful as that end scene I especially love the track Spores. 
Here you can really pick up that otherworld beauty of these so-called monsters. And this score doesn't often dip into that Brian Eno ambient territory. But when it does, it handles it masterfully and always with this healthy dose of creepiness. In fact, in Another Life of Mine, as a music journalist, I once reviewed this collaborative album between Eno and Hopkins. Uh, it was called, I've got the picture in my head, Milky Sea, something like that. Small Craft on a Milk Sea. That's what it was called. It was there somewhere. Now, I, I do rate that one, but I have to admit, it never hits that eerie feeling like this score does. But I reckon that this score is a, a quite an interesting continuation of that album. It's one I would recommend to you all, both that album and this, in fact. In the meantime, you can stream Monsters on Amazon Prime. That is for free. And you can buy the Blu-ray. It's cheap everywhere, so just do that. And I already did mention this, but there is one podcast that I would recommend to you about this. You Never Forget Your First. That's the name of the podcast. It might be You Never Forget Your First podcast. I'm not sure. Just put in You Never Forget Your First. You'll be all right. This episode deals with monsters in its entirety. Uh, It came out on the 21st of May 2020. Now, that's enough sci-fi. That is enough fantasy for goodness sake let's get back to the top 10 horror movies of 2010 The 2010 top 10 that you're currently listening to is full of movies that are either traditional or hyper-real or in a couple of cases even super-nuanced. But here at number 8 we have the only bit of levity in my whole top 10. It's a feel-good, feel-bad also uh, comedy horror slash horror comedy and I say that because it straddles that line really well it makes me laugh intentionally which is really rare and it also grosses me out intentionally and to be honest amongst all those 2010 releases that I watched this one was such such a pleasant relief from all those intense slashes and head fucks that came out in this period Just looking down my list right now, I can see All About Evil. That may have had its tongue permanently in its cheek. Uh, And a film like Rubber, that kicks off with you having to buy into a ludicrous uh, comical concept. But nothing else in my list set out to actually make me laugh. So thank those horror gods for Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Did you see the way those guys looked at us? Who wants to go skinny dipping? No. We got your friend. They captured Allison. Oh, it's the pancakes. You hate pancakes. I'm, I'm gonna make you something else. What am I doing here? Fell into the water. I dove in and rescued you. We'll go find your friends. You should relax. Tucker and Dale are on the case. What is this place? It's just a cabin. It doesn't mean they're psycho killers. Then why don't you go in there and talk to them? All right. Maybe I will. I said maybe. Dale, what are you doing? Digging a shitter hole. You mind if I help? He's making her dig her own grave. There's no rules out here. It's us against them. Oh, good-looking friends are here. 
Which brings us nicely on to that letterboxed synopsis. Evil just missed with the wrong hillbillies. Two hillbillies are suspected of being killers by a group of paranoid college kids camping near the duo's West Virginian cabin. As the body count climbs, so does the fear and confusion as the college kids try to seek revenge against the pair. Now, director Eli Craig, he was completely unknown to me. It turns out Tucker and Dale was his first feature film and I was really impressed with it. And at the time when I saw this, I could not wait to see where he'd go next. And since then, seven years after he made this one, the only thing I found is the release of Little Evil, which came out, I think, exclusively on Netflix. And that was starring Evangeline Lilly and Adam Scott. And although if you did stick with this one, it actually turned out to be okay. It never actually made me laugh once. Uh, It didn't resonate with me in any way. It was just sort of meh. And that's all he's done. I wonder where he's going to go next. In all honesty, I just wish he wouldn't do this Kate Bush thing. You know where Kate Bush has those major gaps between albums? Well, this guy just seems to have major gaps between all his motion pictures. Well, this guy just seems to have massive gaps between all his films. And I say this because I still have complete faith Tucker and Dale shows real masterful flair behind the director's chair. He's taken real care about how this one's presented. Nothing has been thrown together haphazardly. Everything seems to hit. I would definitely say that Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, it's essentially a flip reversal movie. You think it's one thing and it turns out it's not. The characters themselves, they think one thing when actually it's not. Uh, To quote Donald Trump here, There is good on both sides. And the thing that really gets me with this is that nobody on the screen actually acts like a human being would. This whole piece is full of hyper-reality situations and hyper-reality reactions. But I think that's okay because that is the tone that this film takes from the very off. For my money, it is the best horror comedy out there bar one. And that one, of course, is Shaun of the Dead. Come on. Now, I was thinking about this for a little while. The only person that really stands out on this one, it has to be the actor Tyler Labine. He plays Dale. Now, a bit later on, we're going to be talking with director Josh Rubin, uh, and we talk about the value of having an everyman in the leading role. And if anything, the character of Dale is one that everybody watching this will be rooting for. No matter what scrape he ends up in, you just want him to get the girl, you want him to kill the baddies, and you want him to save the entire planet. And Labine's comic timing and his acting chops, they're just spot on here. And what I've noticed is that he does have these smaller roles in both Little Evil and that Escape Room movie. But after this one, he just never really had the chance to shine. He's not given that much of an important role, not since Tucker and Dale, or at least not in the films that I've seen him in, which tends to be just genre movies. In fact, I did see that he had a major lead role in this film called Someone Marry Barry. (laughs) Someone Marry Barry. Yeah, but I, I don't think I'll ever be watching that kind of nonsense. I have my own nonsense to deal with here. And that's really all I want to say about this one, except please keep an eye out for the wood chipper when you watch this film. Nothing ever good comes from having wood chippers in movies. Nothing. So there we go, that is short and good-naturedly sweet.
And if you haven't already seen it and you want to find it, where can you find it? Well, I'll tell you where you can find it. You can find it anywhere on VOD. It's out there in the ether, literally everywhere. And that is where I went to watch it. Like the Blu-ray is out there, but it is still quite expensive for what you get. So be warned. As for podcasts, I've found a couple that I'd listened to, but I cannot remember which was which. So I'm just going to tell you them both. Uh, In April 18, Nightmare on Film Street, they released an episode that dealt with Tucker and Dale plus Cabin in the Woods. And also there is a podcast out there called Dead and Lovely. And that episode was number 127, 127. All right. Okay. I feel like we're done. Tucker and Dale versus Evil, my number eight pick for 2010. Every now and then, a film fills me with panic. Sometimes a movie can fill me so full of like this hopeless dread that I finish it and that's me done for the day. And when I'm watching horror, I think to myself, could I find myself in this hopeless situation? This could happen. And when that happens, I just begin to freak out a bit. And I've had a little think. And in recent years, I can only think of three movies that have properly done that to me. Open Water, Backcountry, they're two of them. And this third one, this third one right here, is called Frozen. No one knows that we're up here. This is so messed up. Here's that letterbox synopsis for you. No one knows you're up there. When three skiers find themselves stranded on a chairlift at a New England ski resort that has closed for the next week, they are forced to make life or death choices that prove to be more perilous than staying put and freezing to death. Now in a moment, my mate Ben and myself, we spoil the crap out of this thing, so be warned. When that conversation starts, if you care, you need to have seen this already. The movie's poster and that above synopsis already, for my money, give away too much. So if you want to keep this spoiler free, just go to the next segment. All your times, they're in the episode notes. So with that being said, here it is. Here's a chat between me and my good friend, Benjamin Bowles. Benjamin Bowles. Paul Waller, how are you? I'm all right, fella. It's good good to see your face. Always good to see your face. Yeah, this is, uh, although I've got a different background now. I've moved house. Never stressful. Uh, I'm glad you could fit in some films. Yeah, well, you were pestering me. You know, I was I was lugging countless boxes up the stairs. I just got a WhatsApp message. It's Paul saying, oh, can you talk about Frozen? Yes, yes, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I've got so many more to send your way, but I'm holding off. So keep them coming now. Don't say that, mate. It'll happen. Um, yeah, you mentioned it. We're talking about Frozen. Uh, we are. We are. Um, I'm sure you. I'm sure you'll clear up which Frozen we're talking about. 
Yeah, so unlike my background uh, that you can see on Zoom right now, we're not talking about Disney uh, Frozen. We are talking about Deathly Frozen, proper Frozen, the horror Frozen. We're talking about a film that still gives me the shivers, literally, when I like think about those scenarios. Did you know about it before I passed this your way? No. The first first time I heard about this was when we were on a walk um, and you mentioned and you mentioned this film and you mentioned the setup uh, and I thought god that sounds that's a good concept I like the sound of that and so and then when you mentioned it that it that it got top 10 there was there was only one choice for me I'm so glad because of uh, what I've been doing for the last week yeah I, I basically squeezed it in and finished watching about 10 minutes ago so it's so fresh it's ridiculous <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's great news. All right. Uh, right. Well, that answers that first question. Right. When you first came across this, that's brilliant. So this is as fresh as you could possibly be. This is as fresh as the, as the plough driven snow that I've just seen on Frozen. I don't think any of the characters stand out. It's not like the most valuable player here. The whole valuable player is the scenario. So my my main takeaway um, from this film and it changed throughout the 90 minutes because the, the setup was always going to be you know quite slow um, not particularly engaging characters but that's okay you're just waiting for them to um, get on the chair get on get on the ski lift and then the first spots um, started happening like the the when he uh, spoiler alert but when he breaks his legs oh, I just thought oh that's outrageous and then the wolf and everything like that and then I and then I made a note about halfway through saying I'm just enjoying this film so much. This is brilliant. And then half an hour later, I then changed that note to saying this film should have been a short <laughs> 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 because because I think there would be real value in taking the stakes higher and higher and higher because you don't care about the character, you don't care about whether they live or die. Really, you just want to sort of see what happens to them. And I think a really pacey, punchy short film of just ridiculous things happening would have been so so much more entertaining than a kind of 90-minute film. Um, and uh, w- there's not many films that are 90 minutes and it feels baggy, but there was like two or three scenes where they're talking about um, what they ate at school and stuff, and you just don't give a shit. Uh, and, and it's only to make it 90 minutes because that's acceptable, you know, um, the acceptable length of a, of a feature. Having said all that, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I'll, I'll come on to what I uh, what I did like about the film after. Well, what did you think? I, I totally agree with you. I think if this was made right now, I think it would be twenty minutes less. I think you could definitely do it in lockdown. A young sort of whippersnapper director could really get some meat out with. Like clearly, they've they've put all that banter between them to sort of create some sort of triangle. Um, but because you're not invested in those characters to begin with, and the dialogue is, it's not completely hammy, but it's like, that's not what you're there for. They're, they're padding and they're not creating any anything interesting that you can grip onto. Oh, you know, I hope they get back to see their mum that's dying of cancer or something like, nothing like that. Like there, there is, the stakes are, are you gonna live, are you gonna die? Which brings me to my big question. Ben, have you ever been 
<laughs> on the chairlift. When you when you sent me this uh, question, I I actually laughed out loud because it was it's an airplane question, isn't it? You go into the cockpit. Have you ever been to, into a Turkish prison? Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Have you ever been on a, a ski chairlift? Um, uh, in answer to the first two questions, yes. Um, in, in answer to the third question, no, no, I haven't. And seeing this film, it doesn't really fill me with too much confidence in in, uh, in going in one. I've been on one, and the scenario never crossed my mind. Even when the light it was dimming, and uh, I was in Austria in a place I didn't really know, didn't have many friends there, is at school, and. I was a rubbish skier, but like I was encouraged to give it a go. So I ended up at the top of this bloody, what I saw as a cliff face with all these people that could actually ski. And I just jumped on the chairlift and just went back down. I didn't have the guts to even try to do it. Knowing what I know and knowing how high those things do go over mm. certain pieces uh, of the piece, it's, it's frightening. And all through this film, I was just thinking, how would I do it? How could I survive this? Would I do things different? For instance, just as a one-off, if I had a scab, no matter how itchy it was, from frostbite, <laughs> I would not be rubbing it off. No, um, no. But I, I was just thinking, I've got to ask Ben, what would you do to survive this scenario? Would you do anything different that they didn't do? Well, the thing is, the thing is that when when he when he jumped off and his legs splattered, I thought, oh, why didn't you? And then I thought, well, what's the alternative? Um, because if you go on your back, you're going to break your back. So it's a lesser of two evils, I suppose. I mean, what you, what he really should have done is do that thing where you jump down and roll forward. Surely you would at least to give you a little bit less uh, height, like work your way down so you could hold the top uh, so you're dangling off it before you attempted anything. Yeah, so true, you Save true. yourself a metre and a bit there. And actually thinking about it, and now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of working my way through it, actually what he should have done is grab hold of his mate, his leg, work, him, work, his, work his way down his mate's leg to have maybe three or four feet um, less to go, surely. That's a great idea. If you land any other way, you're going to break your back, you're going to break your head, you're going to break your arms, but then maybe, like, because your arms aren't that long, maybe they'll snap in the wrong place and, again, you've broken your back then. You know, so there's there's, there's all these choices. You don't know <laughs> horrible pain that you're going to get. And, like, to be honest... My instinct, I wouldn't have waited that long. I would have just jumped. So would you? that's what I would have done. And I would have clearly not not been alive very long. But what, what followed that scene is the, the wolf scene. That was that was pretty epic. I, so, I enjoyed that. Did you see that coming? Because yeah. you, you hear them, you hear them um, before they appear. I at that point, like when I was on the floor with my broken legs, right? So I've I've jumped off. What I would have done. No matter how much pain, I would have just started on my way down. Like, and he didn't. And I was pretty much, even the second time I watched it, so I know how it ends. I was just, come on, do something. At least try. Well, another another thing, actually, is that um, if we're talking about things that you would or wouldn't have done and, and how inaccurate this film is, obviously it's a horror movie, so you're not looking at accuracy too much. 
but on every single ski resort they have what's called lifties do you know that no what's a lifty and so when the when the light goes down they always um member staff goes all the way around just to make sure no one's on it or you know no one's fallen off or fallen over is that just, something just, dated after this film no 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 that's just what <laughs> you've been on maybe yes yeah since 2010 yeah um so maybe yeah so that so if you if we really want to pick holes um it, it sort of yeah it's it's one it's one of those that if they'd known that it would have been quite difficult to write because it's if if he wrote it and some his mate says well that's not right because because lifties will come around like oh for fuck's sake I have to start again then we're not <laughs> so who knows another thing a question for you and I know we're going slightly off topic is and I don't quite know how I feel about this but the opening um, song and then about sort of twenty minutes in they have this kind of American middle of the road rock which wouldn't be out of place in American Pie. I can't work out if that's genius or pretty bad. I can't work it out yet. What about you? I don't think the music choice is very good throughout it. Like the score or the choices of songs. I think it's spoils it a little bit. I would rather just nothing. But what they've done, they've got this come out at a time, right, right at the end of this happening as well, where you would get, like teen stars that have come on big telly shows and things like that to go into your films and and being a horror being something that you're going to be in a cinema holding your girlfriend's hand squirming and things like that and everyone's screaming that's the sort of thing that this was played for so of course you were going to include some of those songs Mm, Uh, mm, i think it's real disappointing because it's age that's what's aged poorly about it i think uh, especially shows like when it's like the last morning and she's fallen asleep and her face, you just think, oh God, it's on the pole. You've already had this experience. Like, don't touch metal. And like, I can just imagine that whole cinema at the time thinking exactly what I'm thinking, go, oh no, oh no, oh no. And then she just moves her face and it's fine. Yeah, and and I would, I would, I would totally agree with that because I think like, well, how I started this whole thing, it should have been shorter because that you could have packed such a punch of set piece after set piece of just things getting worse and worse and worse. And a great example is, you know, when um, she's gripping the metal and she can't move it. So just take that, like, you're not making this film because of accuracy. So just take it and take, and, you know, make her rip her own arm off or something, you know, because that's, like just 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 take it to the oh, nth degree Jesus. rather than rather than oh this hurts a bit uh you know i'll just put it off and you know it, it was just it was just that, that really annoyed me actually just because i think the 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 broken leg scene was so brutal the wolf scene was so brutal uh, and then she has a hurty hand it doesn't really work <laughs> i think with the hurty hand and the, the scabby face that's what's going for that sort of like gross out let's gross uh the people out in the cinemas but they didn't need to show the snap leg at the beginning and they didn't need to show the wolf ripping part of the the intestines out uh, so i guess exactly. you're right like they've already peaked uh, they have yeah that i think that's yeah maybe that's the the biggest issue the the two sort of spots very close together it doesn't actually get it better than that actually and and that 
totally ties into my notes because I was really enjoying it at that point because I thought the pacing up until then, it was steady, it was steady. And then it was just, right, here we go. And then you had those two spots and then it, yeah, it just kind of lost its pacing. On a more positive note. Yeah, bring the positive um, in. This is my top 10, dude. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. On a more positive note, uh, there was no special effects whatsoever. No green screen. Um, it was all filmed up 50 feet up in the air. So I think um, just to just to save on budget. Um, so the director and the director of photography were, were filming everything completely in, in real life. That's mad. Which I think is incredible. Yeah. The whole thing had me so tense. It had me so on edge. The I was trying to think, when have I ever felt that on edge in a film? And I could think of just one of recent times, which was Open Water. I don't yeah. know if you remember that one, um, but that left me in much the same this one did. But it's sort of the dread was more because mm. death was imminent every second. Whereas this way, yeah. you, uh, with Frozen, you may have to wait a little bit until you're going to die. Can you think of a time when it's actually, uh, you've been watching a film and you just said, oh, this is hopeless. Everything here is just like, oh, please get out of this situation. The, the film that I always, I sort of use as the benchmark for a one location, one person, I know this is three people in Frozen, is um, Buried by oh, Ryan Reynolds. It's another 2010 film, that. Right, okay, yeah. I knew it was around then, but I didn't know the exact date. But, um, yeah, how you can make a 90-minute film um, with one person in a box. I mean, that's just genius. And it never gets boring. Never gets boring. I think the only reason why we've even heard of that film is because they managed to, to get a star to do it. If it was anybody else, do you think that still would have worked? That's a great question. Yes, yes, because I think that <clears throat> Ryan Reynolds is obviously a draw, and I think he plays it incredibly. And I think in terms of box office, obviously more people would have seen it because of him. But if you just look at the nuts and bolts of, um, there's lots of people that can act. There's lots of people that act can act in a box, you know. So, um, but I, I, I think financially it made perfect sense. But could someone else have done it? I don't know. It's it's impossible to say, isn't it? But what I would what I would say is it's perfect casting. Not not only uh, on a financial level, but you just believe in him straight away. And so yeah, I mean I think it's I don't know how they did it because it was must have been a tiny tiny budget. But he does he does weird things like that, doesn't he? He he sort of he's he just bought Newport County or something, isn't he? So um, <laughs> a tiny a tiny little Welsh football team. So he's a bit zany. He's a bit crazy. So yeah, maybe he just he fancied doing it on a whim. But I'm glad he did because it was an amazing film. Right. Okay. Ben, we're at the end of this. I need to know, and our listeners need to know. Uh, would you recommend this version of Frozen 2010's Icy Ski Lift? Um. I wouldn't, I'm, I was so tempted to say yes, because like I always say, there's no such thing as a perfect film, apart from It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and, and there's two or three spots which are genuinely great, but in a 90 minute movie, in this style, you need slightly more than that, I would say. So, and I can't even say, just seek out those spots, because without 
10 minutes either side you know, it doesn't mean anything so i'm going to say no i think i think um it should have been a short film where they just got really hammy and dramatic and up the stakes and up the stakes and hands falling off and legs falling off and wolves chomping and everything you know e even stuff like him doing the monkey bars across to another chair and him being so cold that his his body falls off but his hands stay there you know those kind of things in a in a 25 minute awesome little short film rather than a baggy 90 minute film dude we're gonna make a horror director out of you yet <laughs> it's benjamin bowles thank you ever so much pleasure as always mr waller That was me having a chin wag with Benjamin Bowles, photographer, drummer, newish husband, and a new homeowner. Congrats, Ben. Uh, where were we? What's important here? Oh, yeah. As I mentioned in that chat, there's no MVP here except to say the whole synopsis is really the most valuable player. What would happen if the plot is the key here? And I do want to mention here before we finish up that the first person to perish in this is Dan Walker. He's played here by the always unlikable Kevin Zegers. Now, he is probably best known for his role in Gossip Girl, but he has another four potentially great horror roles sitting under his belt, and I'd like to recommend them all to you. First up, he still can't get away from the snow in a film called The Colony, and this has a solid story, but unfortunately it's just not completely backed up by a decent script, and the final edit is way too rickety, ramshackle, shall we say. It's a, not a bodge, but <laughs> it's definitely worth a watch, The Colony. But yeah, it, out of these four, it's the one that I'll probably be least looking forward to going back to. But of course, all that is fixed in the cannibal romp that he stars in. It's the awesome Wrong Turn, directed by Rob Schmidt. Absolutely bloody fantastic, that one. And how about the delightful 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead? That's right, that's the movie with that absolutely perfect opening sequence. And the reason why I can't truly recommend all these four is because this one I haven't seen and I'm so looking forward to it. Horror fans just tend to rate this one through the roof. It's called In the Mouth of Madness. Of course, this is one directed by John Carpenter. And the thing is, this came out in 1994. So how old was Kevin in this? Was he three? Was he like three? I don't know. But like he's taken on some cool roles. I just wish in Frozen, I just wish he stood out a little bit more than he does. And if you wish to watch this, if you wish to buy it, you can find Frozen on VOD, but you will have to pay. Uh, you can get the Blu-ray off Amazon for far less than a fiver, if you fancy a punt. It's cheaper to own it and get it off Amazon than it probably is to rent it. So my suggestion to you, if you haven't seen it yet, is just take that punt. As for podcasts, I'm just going to recommend the one Try the Blood Buddies podcast from April 2019. They go into a lot more detail. Again, you will need to have watched it first. Because this whole film revolves around just one key synopsis, everything that's going to be mentioned in this podcast is a spoiler. All right? Okay, let's move on. Hello there. This is Walla. Just to let you know, if you're listening to this in the future, then just go on to the very next episode to complete 2010. If you're listening to this as it comes out, then tomorrow morning, 
part two is going to be in your inbox. And yeah, you can have a listen then. Thanks very much for listening, you lovely people.